earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part three in this New Year series, Our Faith, What Will Others See in 2023? Our third segment is, How Do We Live Out the Savior's Call? One goal in this series is discovering some practical and creative ways we can reach people in our circles of relationships or our spheres of influence. Being a Christ follower, friends, includes injecting a spiritual element into natural encounters with others. Part one was, How Do God and Jesus See Others? Here we focused on our spiritual eyes. Part two was, How Do the Holy Spirit See Others? There we focused on our spiritual ears. Today we'll explore the question, How Do We Live Out the Savior's Call? and focus on our spiritual actions, or as Scripture calls them, works or deeds. If you missed any segments, the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. To kick off today's segment, I'll share a handful of brief but true cameos that exemplify in several different life settings the influence or lack of influence we can have in people's lives. First, in May of 1934, in Charlotte, North Carolina, a farmer loaned his pastor to some 30 local business owners who wanted to devote a day to pray for the city of Charlotte. They saw that the Depression spread spiritual apathy throughout the city. The added indifference of the local ministers' association spurred these Christian business owners to hold an evangelistic outreach later that year. On that day of prayer, in the farmer's field, the coordinator prayed, Lord, raise up someone out of Charlotte to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Their agenda included erecting in the city a tabernacle to serve as the evangelistic campaign stage, so to speak. September came, and a fiery southern evangelist with his song leader shattered the complacency of churchgoers in Charlotte for eleven weeks. And to top it off, God answered those prayers back in May because that farmer who loaned his field for the prayer meeting was a Mr. Graham, and his son, Billy, became a Christian during those September meetings. And the rest is history, or as I like to say, his story. Second, C. Ray Dobbins, Christian newspaper editor, recalls the story of a passenger next to him on one of his routine flights. Dobbins' seatmate told him of a recent flight he was on from Miami where 65 psychiatrists were traveling home from a convention. During this flight, a woman passenger became ill and also became mentally upset and disoriented, yet not one of the psychiatrists on board offered any help. So the plane had to divert to Nashville, where the woman was rushed to a nearby hospital. Dobbin's seatmate then said, Life's like that. 
then added this amazing insight. There's a great deal of intelligence and expertise in the world, but often it's no help in the face of human needs. The response of Christians is so often the same. We see the great spiritual need, and we have the answer to help. In fact, we go to great lengths to say we have what the world needs, but in many situations we continue unresponsive. Like the psychiatrists, we sit in another section and assume we're guiltless. Where's the courage to care? Ouch! Third, Elton Trueblood, in his book, The Yoke of Christ, excerpts a letter from a schoolgirl who was obviously doing some soul-searching. In her letter, she muses, I've been thinking much this year about the importance of caring. I've often realized that it takes courage to care. Caring is dangerous. It leaves you open to hurt and to looking like a fool. I have found many places in my own life where I keep a secret store of indifference as a sort of self-protective mechanism. Hmm, there's some food for thought, huh, friends? Fourth, a young Christian man was seated on a flight from Denver to Wichita. He noticed the last passenger to board was lifted off an ambulance litter, a 200-plus pound man, probably 25 or so. His story continues. As the attendants cradled him into a seat in front of me, it was evident he was totally paralyzed from the shoulders down. He was strapped in pretty tightly, but as the plane taxied to the runway, the centrifugal force lunged him to the right, causing him to fall forward into the seat in front of him. One of the flight attendants scurried over and quickly propped him back up to an upright position. Once we were airborne, meals and beverages were served. As I finished my meal, I glanced forward and noticed the paralyzed man with his meal still in front of him. No one was feeding him. My eyes welled up with tears. The flight attendants were obviously very busy serving food to the other passengers. Unfortunately, this man was traveling alone. I motioned to the flight attendants, but they weren't able to help feed him. So I volunteered. One flight attendant then expressed gratitude for my assistance. So I began cutting his food into bite-sized pieces, which, by the way, was far above average for airline food and quite tasty. As I placed each piece in his mouth, I felt awkward and a bit conspicuous, yet I knew I was needed. The man began telling me his story, his unfortunate accident, his loneliness, his joys, his struggles, his faith, his hope. His name was Bill. Our spirits united. I would say our exchange almost became sacramental. After I returned to my seat, I was humbled as I thought of all the people who have the good news of the gospel set before them. It's available, but there's no one to feed them. Because they're crippled with psychological and spiritual paralysis, the Holy Spirit then reminded me of Jesus' words, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Fifth and lastly, one Sunday service during testimony time, an evangelist described his mother as being love personified. One particular experience stood out in his mind till that day. As a boy, I remember my mom sitting at the table one day with a vagabond. She had gone shopping and met this vagabond along the way, so she invited him home for a warm meal. At one point during their conversation, the vagabond remarked, I sure wish there were more people like you in the world. Mom then replied, Oh, there are, but you just have to look for them. The old man simply shook his head and said, But lady, I didn't need to look for you. You looked for me. 
When my mom showed her Christian kindness toward that vagabond, she did something more than just offer him welfare. It was a compassion that went out of its way to love the unlovely. He then finished with, Isn't that the story of our Savior's life, death, and resurrection? Jesus came looking for us, the sick, the maimed, the lame, the bruised, the broken-hearted, the wretched wanderer, the poor and forgotten, the prisoner, the lonely. Need I say more? Who will Jesus find next through you? Please remember, friends, our ministry mantra, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Did you notice how the key players in most of these cameos fit into our template? First, there's the Lord through the Holy Spirit, the one with the divine resources. Second, there are human needs to meet, represented by several people experiencing a crisis of one sort or another. Opportunities just waiting for the arrival of a loving channel. And third, there are several loving channels represented by available people with their spiritual antennae up and therefore are looking with Jesus' eyes, listening for the Holy Spirit's voice, and then become engaged in spiritual actions, which turn out to the glory of God. Friends, this is where we become doers of the word. So far each week in this series, our faith, what will others see in 2023? We've looked at how God sovereignly engineers seeming coincidences. In fact, I've been proposing that God is in the business of sovereignly engineering circumstances in people's lives so that he can love them through us. And why I've been sharing the engineer's prayer, as I call it, Lord, engineer the circumstances in people's lives today so that you can love them through me. Have you been courageous enough to pray that prayer and see what God does? So far, we've looked at Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in John 4 and the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Today, in part 3, we'll take a closer look at the very familiar account of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. In our first lesson on the Samaritan woman at the well, we asked, How does Jesus see others? examining spiritual sight. In our second lesson on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we asked, how does the Holy Spirit see others, examining spiritual hearing? Today, in our third lesson, we'll ask, how do we live out the Savior's call, and we'll examine spiritual actions. Our key verses are Luke ten twenty-five through 37. But before we dive into them, there's something supremely important about where they're positioned in Luke that I must bring out. I've said countless times in my classes, context is crucial. So let's observe that Luke chapter 10 opens with the topic of evangelism. Jesus sends out the 70 with this caveat, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. And, interestingly enough, friends, the closing verses just prior to the Good Samaritan account, verses 23 and 24, say, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So, here's Luke 10, 25 through 37. 
On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But the legal expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man that was beaten, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him, or was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out some money and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus then told him, go and do likewise. Friends, my personal paraphrase of Jesus' last line is, go and show. In other words, go and show the same compassion. Friends, let's quickly review who the priests and Levites were. Both had a common ancestry, the tribe of Levi, but their offices were different. The priests descended from a specific branch of Levites through Aaron. The Levites comprised all the descendants of Levi in general and were assistants to the priests. The priests stood out from the Levites by acting as mediators between the people and God and offered the sacrifices for sin. Let's also review who the Samaritans were. In part one, our study of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, recall the bitter racial hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. It was so hostile, friends, that Jews considered Samaritans unclean. Jews would become ceremonially unclean if they just used utensils that were touched by the Samaritans. When traveling between Jerusalem and Galilee, typically a three-day trip, Jews journeying through Samaria knew that Samaritans would not offer them any overnight shelter. Because of this deep-rooted racial animosity, Jews would avoid going through Samaria, preferring to travel the route east of the Jordan River, which added an extra 30 miles to their trip. And let me just say here, shame on the priests and Levites. Shame on those religious leaders for perpetuating this hatred even when someone was in need. So look who ends up setting the example, the reviled and despised Samaritan. He took pity on the beaten man, showing compassion or being moved with mercy, per Luke 10.34. Well, friends, let's pause here for a moment. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. 
I want you to know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is totally listener-supported. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now, back to compassion, a common trait of Jesus. Matthew nine thirty six and 37 say, And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Interesting, right? Jesus' compassion for the multitudes is curiously set in the context of evangelism. Now, similar to our previous two lessons, this account reveals a lot about how the Good Samaritan approached and treated the beaten man and provides yet another model for us. Maybe I should continue my humor and use this story as the basis of a marketing campaign. How about WWSD? After all, we've already looked at WWJD, what would Jesus do, and WWPD, what would Philip do? Why not WWSD, what would the Samaritan do? Well, friends, let's take a closer look at this good Samaritan and observe what characteristics or traits he exhibits in this story. We might even refer to them as tactics. First, like Jesus, he made himself available. In the midst of his regular activity, the Good Samaritan came where the man was and went to him, as verses 33 and 34 show. He didn't just leave him his business card or his synagogue bulletin and say, Come see me when you're well and we'll talk. An opportunity presented itself and he made himself available. Second, like Jesus, he showed patience mixed with compassion. Again, we see this in verses 33 and 34. The word used here is broad and rich. It carries the idea of pity, compassion, and tender mercy, all qualities of a caring person. Third, like Jesus, his care was mixed with love. As we all know, biblical love is love in action. Biblical love demonstrates its qualities by living something out. And fourth, like Jesus, he met the immediate need. This is represented by the actions the Good Samaritan took, bandaging his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, putting the man on his own donkey and taking him to an inn to recover, as verses 34 and 35 tell us. Now, friends, I noticed a few missing pieces of the puzzle here, some unresolved aspects to this story. There's some unanswered questions left for us to wonder about, like, whatever became of the injured man after he got well? Did the Samaritan ever tell him about God? Did the man ever get saved? And it's this lack of information about the spiritual outcome of this man's life that has led many Christians to deduce that the moral of the story, in other words, the lesson we're to take away, is simply that this story is meant to convict us of our social responsibility to our fellow man and guilt us that we're not doing enough for others. But friends, want to hear my take on this? 
If this is all we're to take from this story, we've really missed the boat, missed its central truth, and we'll have done ourselves and the scriptures a great disservice. You see, friends, the same template we've been discussing for the past two teachings applies to this story as well. Friends, let's not forget our ministry mantra. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. And as careful reading and observing Christ followers, we know we must read between the lines a little to notice certain things. For instance, the divine resources are sort of in the background. God is not specifically mentioned, is he? But is God any less at work here? Hasn't God engineered circumstances in the attacked man's life so that his love could be demonstrated through a loving channel such as the Samaritan? What? A Samaritan being a loving channel for God? Never! The Jews would say, humbug! And the careful observer of the text would have to admit that a human need was met through a loving channel. And a harder question here would be, does God get the glory in the story? See, friends, I'm thoroughly convinced and believe with deep conviction that until we see this story in its context of evangelism and understand that the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few, we won't come away excited about the opportunities God engineers for us to let others see our faith. Sometimes letting others see our faith means recognizing stepping stones to final belief. Notice this was one characteristic of our two previous lessons. One stepping stone, or the first stepping stone, may simply be meeting a person's immediate needs, like the Good Samaritan did, to the glory of God. Recall last time, friends, I mentioned Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now let's add Titus 3.14. And let our people, that's us Christians, also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Our ultimate admonition, of course, comes from Jesus, whom we've already quoted. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds or your actions, and praise the Lord your Father in heaven. Well, friends, let's close out our time today with two final short but appropriate cameos. First, a true story about a businessman who one night turned his life over to Christ. On one subsequent morning, he was late catching his train. In his hurry on the platform, he bumped into a small boy with a puzzle in his hand, scattering the pieces all over the platform. But instead of rushing on, he stopped, stood down, and helped pick up the pieces while watching his train pull out of the station. When they both finished picking up the puzzle pieces, the little boy looked up into the man's face and asked, Mister, are you Jesus? And second, during the Crimean War, Florence Nightingale was passing through a hospital ward one night. She paused and bent over the bed of a wounded soldier. As she looked down on him with eyes of compassion, the young man looked up at her and said, You are Christ, come to me. In 1988, Wayne Watson wrote the song, Untouched by Human Hands. Some of the words are, The plague, generations leprosy, unspeakable shame, untouchable lives, much in need of love. But these days, who's got much to give? 
Give in to the pressure. Cross the street on the other side. When Jesus told the listening that those who followed him could bear the strike of the serpent, could drink the poison in. Was his vision some spectacular scene, some exhibition, some display, or a reminder as I live and breathe to reach out and not be afraid? I try to be a godly man. I try to walk in the steps of Jesus. I disregard the Lord's command when I walk through my journey, untouched by human hands. Lord, stretch forth your hand and reach them through me. Friends, let's close with Hebrews thirteen twenty and 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will and work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, today's program will close with an email where you may write me. One listener wrote in on part one with another thought-provoking commentary. May we make ourselves open to others by putting our own agenda aside long enough to really see them as Jesus sees them and listen to them with our hearts and not only our ears. Well, thanks for your feedback. And the email you hear shortly is also where you may inquire about financially supporting a word from the word. I love coming alongside you who are without a church home or those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com. Search the menu for local program podcasts. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.